All right, Hi-Fi Nation for Slate Plus. This is Barry Lamb, and I am here once again with Sarah Lusbader. Sarah, hi. Hi, how are you doing? We are both holed up in our respective closets, and attic, and so on uh, during the coronavirus, but that's not going to stop us from talking about some of the issues that came out of the episodes. And right now we're going to talk about the episode on informants. Sarah, what was your take? I, I love this episode, and I think it's a topic that if you are a practitioner of criminal law in any way, which I used to be as a, as a public defender, you see the exact things that are highlighted in this episode so clearly. I think you kind of want to tell the world a lot of the things that are expressed in this episode, which is just how unequal the bargaining position is beforehand when people enter into these informant agreements that people uh even academics you know like contract theorists will say well you know it's a it's a bargain entered into freely by two two parties and it's if anything a benefit that could be conferred on you and in fact you should just be grateful that that you have something to offer the government that they that they want and as you point out, there's an arbitrariness there that I think should strike people as upsetting. But at, at another fundamental level, there are so many assumptions that are implicit in that statement, like the idea that the sentence that the person's facing in the first place was reasonable. I think one of the examples that you gave was a young person who ended up unfortunately getting killed or as the police said uh, they, they said that he had killed himself but I think you said he was facing like 40 years that's what the police and prosecutors said to him yeah that's what they said to him uh, that was that wasn't even true if they if he had looked at the record nobody had gotten 40 years for that particular crime but in the statute was it possible yes it was possible in fact all of the cases that had been litigated or high profile that was a number i kept coming across as i did all this legal research i was like what was it that the that the police had threatened the individual with and it was always 40 years that 40 was the number I, it's just so laughable to me that you would take a young person who like would break up with their girlfriend for the summer because they can't imagine staying together for like three months without seeing each other like three months is that long a time for a young person and try to get them to understand 40 years um it's insane. It's insane to think that, A, that that's reasonable for the kind of offenses that you're talking about, which are drug offenses. And we know that a lot of these laws on the books that have to do with sentence ranges basically serve to give prosecutors leverage so that they can extract things like these highly coercive informant deals or just a ton of guilty pleas without having to take cases to trial. So, so even just assuming that option B, which is sort of um, possibly making a deal or, or, you know, accepting a sentence or going to trial and risking that sentence is in any way reasonable. That's already a flawed assumption. Um, the other thing is that the the young person is not part of the government. I think Nick does a pretty good job describing how it felt to be in that room surrounded by law enforcement. These people wear badges. They wear uniforms. They carry weapons. It's not just the power that they have to... Um, you know, possibly take your body and put it in a cage for 40 years. It's also all the paraphernalia that that go along with with law enforcement. So you're really in this very unequal situation to begin with. And that's not even getting to the nature 
of being an informant itself. So I was just so glad to hear anyone describe the 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 sort of fallacy that is the idea that this is somehow a fair or equal bargain. Could you talk a little bit as a public defender in that particular role when you're looking after your client, you still feel the pull of a deal like that? Because public defenders who are in good faith working to represent their clients could still feel the pull of that, like knowing just how much the state can just rain down on an individual. All the time. I felt it too. You know, your mandate as a public defender is to zealously defend your client and to pursue your client's interests. So if the client is interested in cooperating for whatever reason, that's your interest too. Unless you think it's just so foolhardy that that you have to try to talk them out of it. And it's totally possible in any given case that that is actually the reasonable thing to do because the sentence that they're looking at is so unreasonable. Absolutely. I think plenty of people who are public defenders often wish that their clients had more to offer the government because it's it's sometimes a better deal, even though it's a terrible deal and a huge gamble. In many cases, that's just how messed up our punishment system is that that, in fact, these kinds of awful deals could actually be the better option. Yeah. And then the other thing I came across in my legal research is that not only is this a very secretive practice, you know, it's not there's not a document that's publicly available. Like, here's a list of the things that informants have been asked to do in exchange for what for what. You know, it's like to break the law. I mean, there's going to be things like, OK, yeah, they're not going to ask an informant to kill somebody. Anything that a cop does that's illegal on the on the job. But in terms of the kind of risk that you place an informant under, it's no real constraint. It's not like it's something that can be taken higher up to an appeals court and ruled unconstitutional or anything like that. So there's, it's not really clear, like asking someone to perform oral sex on somebody else. Judge Posner actually said, well, it's risky, but so is doing a drug deal. That's risky too. Classic Posner. Um, thanks. <laughs> thanks for that. Um, I was, I was really struck by that example. Hey, you're totally right. There's, it's confidential for a reason, and, and it's confidential foremost to protect the person, the, the defendant, the person that's taking the deal, because, of course, it's hugely risky. So if anyone were to find out that they're informant, they could be killed, and, and often they are killed. Um, but I think you're right in terms of understanding it as a phenomenon. There's no transparency whatsoever, so we actually don't know what people are being asked to do. The example that you give at the end of the episode of someone who, who was asked to perform oral sex and does it, and then is so uh, horrified by it. To me, when I heard that, I don't think I'm saying this as a practitioner, I'm saying this just as a person, I don't see the difference between what they've asked this person to do, and an officer pulling someone over for a minor infraction and saying, basically, if you'll perform the sex act on me, I'll let you go. You could say that maybe they don't, there's like the benefit is somehow conferred on someone else, but I find it morally equivalent. Yeah. Interesting. Now, do you did you have any questions about this episode for me? I think one thing I would kind of like to to hear you talk a little bit about is you talk about Queen for a day and other agreements where you're sort of saying we're not going to enforce every single law, and in fact we're going to 
explicitly not enforce this this particular law in this particular instance in order to enforce this other law against this other person um, because we've decided that the latter is more important somehow societally right basically we're, we're, we're making that decision we're, we're creating a hierarchy and I was wondering what issues you thought were inherent in giving police as opposed to any other party the authority to make that decision uh, and like which which laws should be subservient to others i would like to ask you very quickly because this came up in the last discussion that we had do you recognize that this is a utilitarian kind of reasoning yes i, I, do, I do think that in theory i think the idea that it would be a utilitarian calculus is the best case scenario you, you could arrive at here Because that assumes that the police are actually thinking about the greatest good for the greatest number of people. I don't think that that's what would happen or that's what happens. Right. Absolutely. Because as a matter of fact, they're thinking about their own incentives, whatever the departmental policy is, right? So if the department's like, they want drug convictions, it'll be drug convictions. But the structure of the reasoning is about violating rules in the interest of a greater good. You know, Luke Hunt is probably the most deontological when it comes to the people that I spoke to. Like he thinks rule of law is fundamentally non-utilitarian. So he thinks the police shouldn't have that power to make decisions of that kind. Only in extreme emergency types of cases, he hates it that, you know, some supervisor can be like, oh, okay, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and do it. Like he hates that. He thinks that if there's rule of law, there should be rule of law. And, And I put it to him and I said, you sound like a goody two-shoes. It sounds like you're the guy in the FBI that says, but that's a rule, you know? And, <laughs> and, and I think he actually accepted that. He said, yeah, there's not enough people like me. Um, so that, so that's one. Well, I mean, who whoever said, like, I would like to get a, a beer with Kant, right? <laughs> like, Yeah. One of the things I wanted to highlight in the episode is just that given a, a specific kind of context, even somebody who's like a criminal justice reformer like yourself will be sympathetic to it if it was like, hey, look, there's this dirty cop and like they're doing queen for a day kind of things. How else are we going to get dirty cops to be held accountable if not for some kind of tactics that we go after? I very consciously put in internal affairs investigations for that purpose because a lot of us like it when it's the right bad guy. And we don't like it when it's not the right bad guy. There, I think you're right. You, you say that there's this this satisfying like crunch that goes along with seeing people held to their own standards, the standards that they impose on other people. There's just this sort of matchiness to it. I have a hierarchy of laws I would like to see enforced. I would like to see people in positions of authority held accountable. I, I to me that's. Uh, that's a good priority for law enforcement. So I would be more sympathetic to uses of discretion that involve informants or that involve sort of bending the law or breaking the law when it serves the goals of holding people in authority to account. I think that those laws are are just worthier. I think that they make for the society that I would like to live in more than, as we talked about uh, with the last episode, malum prohibitum laws being enforced against ordinary citizens. Yeah, that's right. So so I think that the 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 direction that I hear you um going and I think I might be very sympathetic to it. It's kind of like in comedy, like punching up. Like if you're going to do some kind of um breaking the law in order to um better enforce it in some other context, 
um, the right principle ought to be for police. Um, what you don't like is the enormous power they have over um, ordinary citizens, but other people have that kind of power over police and other citizens. And for the police to apply this kind of reasoning to them sounds all right, right? It sounds like the kind of thing that we need. But to use that kind of tool against people you already have an enormous power over contributes to the injustice of breaking the law in order to enforce the law. That sounds reasonable to me, Sarah. I think so. <laughs> I think that it's it's very reasonable. I would like to live in that world. And I think, you know, these are discussions that public defenders, these are debates we have over dinner all the time, right? Like I have some public defender friends who believe in cop jail, right? Like we don't believe in jail, but we believe in cop jail. And I think I'm kind of one of those, right? But then there are some people who are just like, no, I don't believe in jail at all. Do you ever catch yourself like as you're talking to your public defender friends when you say, yeah, I, I like cop jail and I like crooked politician jail and all that. I do too, by the way. But do you ever stop and say, okay, now let me reevaluate that? Of course. Of course it does. You know, you can read someone like Ruth Gilmore or Angela Davis and say, yeah, like just the idea of putting someone in a cage ever. Why did we ever think this was a good idea? I'm certainly persuaded by those kinds of arguments. I have a sort of not very well worked out justification for this idea that I have, which is just that some crimes are deterrable and some are not. So in my practice, I have seen people be punished for things that sometimes they don't even remember, that that morally speaking, I don't think that they should be held accountable for, that imposing any kind of sentence does nothing for society and does nothing for that person. I'm thinking in particular of a, one client who was uh, arrested for swiping a vacuum cleaner during a delusional spell where he, you know, his statement to the cops was gibberish. He didn't remember the episode. Once he was back on his proper medication, he was back to his law-abiding self. And the prosecutor said, well, he has to be held accountable, you know, as if that means anything in that context or means anything to society or that particular person. Whereas if you're talking about a police force that actually responds to incentives that we know we can make rules and th and it's not like they'll be followed to the to to the letter, but at least they do influence the way that they act. These are deterrable harms. So I do think that enforcing those kinds of rules can actually just make society better. Uh, so that's that's my justification for the somewhat hypocritical stance that I have. <laughs> yeah, good, good. Um, I really like that. Um, so in the last, say, four minutes, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the issue that I thought it was the trickiest that I actually didn't get into in the episode that arose from the episode, which is what constitutes a valid and free contract? What conditions are egregious enough that we think that it's coerced or it's um, a contract between unequal parties that the other can't give valid consent to? When you're a public defender and you see a set of stacked charges and this poor kid that you're with, you know that's an unequal situation. You're still looking out for your client and they still want to make deals of different kinds. Like what constitutes a valid contract that you can say is to their benefit is it's a tricky it's a tricky issue, right? I'm I'm as you're talking, I'm trying to think of an example of an agreement between the state and a person where the person has criminal charges hanging over his or her head, wherein that agreement would be free. 
uh, and equal. And I cannot think of an example. I just can't. I think that anytime you have a criminal charge pending against you and it's the state against a person, I can't. I just don't think that that is an you're never going to be on an equal bargaining level. You're just not. I think most contracts outside the criminal justice uh, arena are not equal. They're often between a big corporation and a person. Uh, And I think the corporation has a lot more power in that situation. I think very few of these contracts actually can be said to be made freely. I mean, you know, to the extent that you make certain promises when you like marry your partner, maybe that's a free contract. But I think it's, I can't imagine one. And I think this, this sort of infects some of the progressive uh, reforms that we've seen in court. So we, we've seen various problem solving courts open up, uh, drug courts, veterans parts, uh, sex trafficking courts that are made so that when you when when you're facing a charge of a certain nature that we see the certain sort of set of issues come up again and again you're diverted to this particular court part and and the idea is that you would get sort of uh kinder treatment from the judge and maybe from the prosecutor like oh you could do these programs and if you do that maybe we'll we'll dismiss the case or something and i think that they're hailed as this great step forward but the reason i'm bringing it up now is that i think people forget it's still an unequal playing field there. It's just something that we we ought to be keeping in mind in many contexts, even apart from the informant context. Like any plea bargain is presumed to be a contract that's that's a freely entered into contract. Like, oh, well, you know, trial's a gamble. So if you don't want to go to trial, you don't want to, to risk it. Here, look, we're, we're offering this to you. And you've people have to say that out loud in court every time they take a plea. They say, I'm entering into this agreement freely and voluntarily. And that part, every single time, and I have stood next to, I mean, so many people as they say this out loud in court, it makes me cringe every single time to hear people say that because it is so untrue. I think that the distinction that I'm really after is um, the difference between a morally legitimate and a morally illegitimate contract. Because as I think you're absolutely right. You're not going to have any free contracts in the criminal justice system. And I think it's related to the distinction that I think some philosophers have written about, which is the difference between an offer and a threat. Like you can conceptualize one and the same thing in both ways. You can say, oh, this is an offer that I'm free to walk away from, or it's a threat. And really, (laughs) there's no real, that's a distinction without a difference in the criminal justice case, right? Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. (laughs) I think it's all a threat. That ends our Slate Plus discussion for this episode of Hi-Fi Nation, The Informant. Thanks to Chow Tu, editor of Slate Plus, and June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. There will be a bonus episode every week accompanying this season of Hi-Fi Nation, and I'm doing invite-only Zoom events featuring guests from this season, as well as other guests, professional philosophers, people who work in the criminal justice system, If you want to get an invitation, just go to hifination.org to find out how. We will see you next week.